It's November 13, 2019, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. This is a special one, and I'm Bert Lum. Today, we are on site in Hilo at Hale Olelo on the University of Hawaii Hilo campus, and we're at the College of Hawaiian Language. First up, we're going to be joined by Matt Rantanen and Mariel Triggs. Uh, we'll talk about the Internet Society and the Indigenous Connectivity Summit. Of course, Matt Rantanen is the Director of Technology for the Southern California Tribal Chairman's uh, Association, and he's also Director of the Tribal Digital Village Networks Initiative. And Mariel Triggs is the CEO of MerrillNet and uh, working with Native uh, Nations to bring Internet equality to their communities. I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We're in Hilo, and this is a annual summit. And maybe, Matt, I know you've been at both of them. So tell us a little bit about what uh, transpired in uh, the previous uh, two summits. So the first summit was held in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it was kind of the inaugural start to this. And we brought in folks from Canada and America and, and the tribal nations to get together to talk about this. And it really kind of started the process of this needs to be an annual function. This is a great place for tribes to come together and talk about these solutions. Uh, the second year was a dramatic change. We ended up in Inuvik, uh, the Northwest Territories of Canada, um, 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, which was a little bit different than Santa Fe. But oddly enough, the same exact problems in the tribal communities of connectivity. And it really opened the door to... Um, to continuing this as an annual function and, and engaging and building the group of people together that will talk and and be a part of building networks for Native communities. And Matt, how did you kind of get, get wrapped up in this uh, area of connectivity and internet and, and connectivity for uh, the, the, the tribal communities? So randomly enough, I'm a recovering graphic designer. Okay. And, and so I was engaged uh, from a dot-com company by the tribal community in Southern California to come down and teach them how to build community web portals. And so that's a, basically a website for a community, an outward-facing site to tell people about your community. And I, in the process of doing that, the tribal leadership recognized that I had um, certain flexibility in management and understanding that a million dollars wasn't really as massive as it sounds mm -hmm. and that there's a, a lot of management that goes in, in our process. And I got picked up as a director of technology. Um, let's see, 2001, October. And so I'm in my 19th year now. Wow. And Mariel, you're, um, I, I met you up in, in Nuvik and uh, you got a chance to talk a little bit about the uh, MerrillNet. Uh, tell me real quickly, like what, what does MerrillNet, MerrillNet do? Uh, so we were started in 2017 as a bunch of volunteers, and what we were about was helping to deploy networks in tribal lands. We figured out a way to make it cheap and easy. It was just the right time. Um, our founder, Martin Casado, he he invented software-defined networking, so basically the base of what all network platforms are built on today. And he knew that there was a lot of open source networks coming on. So what normally would cost $100,000, all of a sudden you were going to be able to download for free from GitHub. And we also knew that equipment was coming down in price and that in tribal lands in the United States, it was actually quite ripe in that there was a lot of infrastructure in place when it comes to backhaul and electricity due to the efforts of folks like Matt. 
um, making sure that folks are connected. Unfortunately, it usually meant an anchor institution was connected. And what we did is we kind of put this all together to make a delivery system so that people in their homes can be connected to the internet. So, you know, this Internet Society and the Indigenous Connectivity Summit, I mean, this is only kind of like three years in the in the works. Like Santa first. Fe and then Inuvik up in the uh, Northwest Territories and, and here in, in Hawaii. And Internet Society, I mean, it's a it's a international organization, and I'm I'm glad that they've taken on sort of the the banner of of really promoting indigenous connectivity. But you know, being that it's only three years in the making, that's that's a pretty short run, right? I mean, what what got the Internet Society to really take this as a as a major initiative? So I think uh, we have to credit part of that to Mark Buell, who has lived in Native communities and has been a part of this. It's one of his initiatives personally. But I think one of the things that happens with um, with groups like this is they're looking at the developing world. And they're looking at Africa. They're looking at South America and India and places where there are no resources. And the Native Americans, uh, United States and, and I'll say Canada as well, have been pushing very hard to look inward to their own nation's to some of the underdeveloped communities um, that are domestic. Why go to a different continent to do this? I mean, you're, you're a U.S.-based company. Yes, you're global, but you, you need to look inward. And I think that's been an initiative for the last five or six years to actually get that focus turned towards the inner United States where we do have the same lack of connectivity that, we, that you would in Africa as well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to feel that that's part of the initiative as well. And, and uh, Meryl, you know, uh, Meryl, Ned, I mean, you folks have been involved with, with uh, a bunch of community networks. I mean, and typically, how remote are these communities? And given the fact that they're remote, uh, what options do they have to actually connect to the Internet? So when it comes to how remote communities are, um, our most extreme remote case would probably be our pilot, which was with the Havasupai tribe mm-hmm. at the base of the Grand Canyon. Um, and our our closest is actually um, probably just 12 miles outside of a major metropolitan center. And strangely, they're almost exactly the same kind of deployment. They were connected through microwave to a nearby spot. And all it was was a matter of um, distributing to the homes from that one spot. The technologies that we ended up using uh, is a 4G technology LTE. We used really... Reliable base stations. Um, they're off the shelf. Uh, those those two communities used a, a buy sales model, and you essentially put up the base station and an antenna, and then you bring to the homes. Um, they're called CPEs, uh, consumer customer, customer premise equipment. Yeah, or SE subscriber or UEs user. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's just a, a unit that's plug and play. Um, the technology is actually pretty trivial once you have access to backhaul. And in those cases, microwave backhaul is great. Fiber would be much better because it is more reliable and has much more throughput. Um, And the fallback for our communities, which we'll be using for the first time um, in a couple weeks, would be satellite as a backhaul. So in the case of Havasupai, uh, you know, when when they originally had microwave, how was that being served to the community? And how did LTE make a difference? Because they would still need to have backhaul, right? And was microwave still a part of the puzzle uh, to enable the 4G? The microwave backhaul is still what's connecting the tower at above on um, Long Mesa. Mm-hmm. So that's still there. That hose is still there. You know, one day maybe it'll be fiber. Hopefully maybe next year. Who knows? Uh, but for now, that's the microwave. And instead of having just the microwave link down to um, 
Tusupai or the 3G solution, mm-hmm. which is what I, I believe it's Verizon offers. Uh, yeah, we put up a, a small 4G unit, actually two. Strangely, it was easier to have two up there because it's so remote compared to the community. It takes four hours to get somebody on site. So if in case something goes wrong with one unit, I just turn it off remotely and turn on the other unit. Um, it's that cheap when the equipment where you can actually have that redundancy of that level and it's not that big of a deal. So your your company helps to kind of network manage the connectivity that's happening out there? What we help with is we help with the legal acquisition of Spectrum. Um, there's a special opportunity when it comes to the 2.5 gigahertz spectrum, which mm-hmm. is ideal both because of policy and physics for rural deployments. We then help with actually the equipment and the, the um, engineering design and the deployment. And then depending on what communities want, um, there's training and education. There's uh, We offer technical support for at least a year. Um, actually, all of our technical support keeps going on. The networks only take a couple hours a month to run for the network operators on the ground. So what we really do is we tailor it. Some folks just use our legal support. Some people just use our engineering supports. Some people want the whole menu. It's really about getting to know the vision of the community and supporting that vision 100%. Now, Matt, you've uh, been working with a lot of the the Native American um, and and First Nations people. Uh, And and in terms of the kind of uh, situation that they're in, Maybe different from what exists in Hawaii, but for a Native American tribe, uh, what are some of the things that they are able to do in terms of embracing uh, this technology? I know it's kind of a balance between, you know, do they want to build it and, and manage it themselves or do they want somebody else, like a corporation, to come in and, and do this? But from a, from a, a Native people standpoint, is there a movement toward this idea of being self-sufficient? Yeah, so there's always been the concept of self-determination in, in Native American tribes and as well uh, Canadian reserves as well uh, in their tribes. So with 573 in the lower 48 in, in Alaska and over 600 in, in Canada, um, you know, you have a lot of unique situations. But on the whole, as an average, um, it, it is being looked at as something that um, controlling your own destiny by running your own network and owning your own um, components and, and managing it yourself has become more valuable than partnering with an external uh, builder or allowing a provider to come on your network or on your community to build a network uh, because you don't really have control of what happens to the future. You don't have control of the, the net neutrality component of that and whether or not you get access to all of the features of the internet based on your upstream provider. Um, who you get your connectivity from. So it is um, it is very crucial, I think, for tribes that have the wherewithal to actually become their own provider and actually control their own destiny on that level. So, Muriel, you, you know, a lot of the um, uh, tribes, uh, do they feel empowered to challenge the, you know, some of the powers that exist to become more self-determinant? And, and those powers include things like... Uh, you know, corporations or federal governments? I mean, how do they take the role and really run with it? There's definitely different methods that I've seen. We really like to start off with their vision. And we've been very lucky to partner with the Havzupai tribe because with them, we found essentially a legal loophole in order to get them access to spectrum Mm -hmm. um, that was going to be replicable throughout Indian country. 
where any tribal government was going to be able to claim large swaths of this really sweet spectrum slice. Uh, and then things froze and shut down, and the Havasupai tribe uh, for the next year and a half basically fought, not just to make sure that they got their slice of spectrum, but that other tribes would be able to do the same. Okay, so um, you know, spectrum. I, I often think of the FCC and, as being the the controller of, of the, that spectrum, and I can see where uh, federal recognized tribes could get access uh, real quickly. I mean, can, can you express uh, or what are some of the paths that need to take place in Hawaii for something like that to happen? Well, when it comes to the two dot five spectrum that we've been focusing on and that the Havasupai tribe and Muralnet have been fighting for. Uh, there's a situation where there's two things that happen to happen. You have to have an eligible entity and you have to have eligible lands. And right now the Hawaiian homelands are listed as eligible. I think pretty much every homeland except any, any on uh, Oahu are, have a spectrum that can be claimed above it. Um, it's unlicensed. However, there's a current situation where there's no federally recognized tribe that is eligible to claim it. Um, mm-hmm, because the nation mm-hmm. of Hawaii is not nationally recognized. Matt, where can people find out more information about what you know is happening with indigenous uh, com- connectivity and the Internet Society? Uh, well, in- internetsociety.org. Uh, I would say muralnet.org and um, National Congress of American Indians.org. So it's ncai.org. Those are three good places to start, and you can branch out from there. I'll definitely put that up on our show notes for later on. Uh, Matt is the Director of Technology for the Southern California Tribal Chairman's Association, and Mariel Triggs is the CEO of MerrillNet. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Well, thank you very much thank for having you. us. And, of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by a few more guests here at the Internet Society's Indigenous Connectivity Summit. So don't go away. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. This week we are here on site in Hilo at uh, Hale Olelo, which is the University of Hawaii at Hilo's uh, uh, campus, uh, and um, we are part of the Internet Society's Indigenous Connectivity Summit, so I thought I'd bring you directly to some of the action that's happening over here. And of course, I'm happy to have uh, Dennis Bumpy Kanahele here in the studio with me from the Nation of Hawaii and from Havasupai tribe over uh, in Arizona, right? Um, we've got Councilwoman Ophelia Watahomaji Corliss, and of course, we're here to talk about community networks. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm going to start with you, Ophelia, and I'm, I'm thrilled that uh, you are able to come to beautiful Hawaii and experience, uh, you know, some of our culture and some of our climate. It's, it's a, a little different from Arizona, right? It's a little different from uh, Havasupai, and and maybe you can sort of describe the environment that, that you live in. Um, so I live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon um, in a village called uh, Supai um, on the Havasupai Reservation. And um, in fact, to get out here, um, I'll start from hiking down from the village uh, 
um, you start uh, walking and you walk by the river. Pretty much it's a spring river, very large. Uh, and then you walk and you meet and then the canyon walls are about a mile above you. And the farther that you keep walking and you're walking through this uh, canyon, the walls start to get lower and so you're walking more and more out from the bottom and then you hit the switchbacks and then you climb up uh, the last part of the wall and then you're on top of the mesa tops and that's when i hopped in my car and headed to the airport how many miles was that oh eight miles really yeah. so you hiked just i mean just to get to the car eight miles uh, yes i did now you know uh, you know something that uh, i think uh, affects us in hawaii is that the 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 branding and the marketing of Hawaii has been so successful, but it only kind of communicates one level of engagement in Hawaii. And of course, you know, the Grand Canyon, everybody knows about the Grand Canyon. But, you know, when it comes to the native peoples and, and some of the, the cultural knowledge that they know, does that that kind of typically escapes some of the branding? It does. Um, it depends on what branding you're getting your information from mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, to be very honest, the Havasupai do not advertise, but we still sell out the tourism spots that we have to come visit and camp um, in about 24 hours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I definitely, when I go to places like that, I mean, the first thing I seek out is some of the the, the traditions and the native peoples that uh, exist in that area. And so so I've got uh, Bumpy Kanaheli here, and, and uh, you know, he is representing the, the nation of Hawaii. And, and Bumpy, you know, give me a little bit of background on how you got to where the, you know, this Waimanalo location is and and. So tell me a little bit about that, 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 that brief history. I mean, you can, right. you can condense 25 years and, you know, maybe more into maybe, you know, I don't know. A few minutes. 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, 30 seconds. Okay, let me try. Well, actually, it started uh, uh, in 1993. Um, the January 17, 1993, the United States of America passed a law. It was uh, U.S. Public Law 103-150, the Apology uh, law, we deem it the apology law, and that was in in uh, response to the overthrow of our kingdom, uh, which happened a hundred years prior. Anyway, that led to um, more aggressive uh, uh, stance on self determination and self governance. And with that, with that said, I went down to the beach park. I had. A lot of friends and family down at the beach park and homeless, mm-hmm. uh, actually houseless. A lot of them from the homestead uh, where I live in. And um, so I took this law down, actually down to the beach, and started educating some of the people I knew. And they were interested and, you know, and came to the point where they learned enough that it, it wasn't enough. They wanted more. So... I gathered them up at the beach park and took them all to Makapu, which mm-hmm. you know, across the Sea Life Park. And we occupied that land for about 15 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the tourist attractions on the windward side. And that eventually led to the state of Hawaii giving us land. 45 acres, uh, 55-year lease, and, uh, and a whole bunch of work. <laughs> you know, then... That led into organizing, you know, we had uh, initially 300 people on a beach 
uh, that ended up in the mountains with us. And that wilted down after about two months to about 150 uh, people. And from that, you know, as time going along, we have to, like, cut forests, got to build houses. We got to do all these things and without no help from the government, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. It was actually uh, kind of like they, they thought we wouldn't be successful. Anyway, that grew into a very, very strong uh, women's council uh, because, you know, we were close. We were families that diverse families from, you know, we all, they all came out from the beach park. But then family members that knew they were on the beach started to come by and help out. And, you know, everybody started to, to help the families they knew that were once homeless. Now, I forgot about that, uh, Bert, that they were all down the beach mm-hmm. until the homeless problem came up in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Now, that led to eventually being really organized, not being dependent on the state to give us anything. And we just started to build, build without permits, building roads, setting water lines, pulling electricity lines in, and without the help from the government. So we had this stigma with the the state and the federal government about, you know, first of all, about the overthrow and all that stuff. But second was how do we get the resources to come in to help us. So we ended up going out to private sources, private mm-hmm. resources. Mm-hmm. Now, long story short to the present time, if I didn't meet you, we would never be here sitting down and uh, talking on discussing some of even the, the future t- st- stuff that, you know, we're starting to learn, like broadband network. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea how important that was to us. Uh, we, we knew it was important, but not when you meet, you know, experts, people that, you know, with experience that has done this, like yourself and other people that you realize, wow, you know, you, I realize I was shortchanging our families there, right, on the land. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing uh, uh, about broadband network and, and communications, uh, actually, it's, it's a perfect time because our children... Um, you know, they're learning how to use Internet. And when they come home, in the homestead, the families don't have that kind of speed. The kid falls back. Mm-hmm. Parents blame the kid. You're not paying attention, da, 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 da. So there's so many levels on a, on a social arena, the health, housing, education, all those things that better uh, Internet uh, service would just provide all these things. And in our village... It's, it's perfect because it's, it's not big, uh, it's not too small, it has, you know, it has a lot of weight as a community, and they're primed to, like, learn all this new stuff. And it's like blank tape recorders and you're feeding them, yeah, yeah. you know, new stuff. And, and, but I want to thank you, Bert, you know, for, you know, well, you have, know we, we letting all, me have faith in a state again. Well, we and, we and, all, you know, trying to make Hawaii a better place, and I think yeah, uh, I really, what you guys are doing is, is, is really part of that you know Ophelia when when your uh, community was being served by you know this microwave connection I mean what was it about it that that really dawned on you that we perhaps need more and how did people like uh, or companies like Merrillnet actually get involved because you know they might have looked at you as being oh you're just isolated down there at the you know at the bottom of the canyon I mean you could have been forgotten so how did you raise your voice to be heard 
could have been usually are, which mm-hmm. is why the tribe itself needed to take control and serve its own people. So with the microwave hop, we were getting 10 megabytes and that was being distributed throughout and for use for the, all of the tribal departments and the tribal government. We were able to submit quarterly reports for the federal grants that we had, but we weren't able to participate in webinars. We weren't able to uh, do the online education to extend our continued education for our professionals. Uh, We weren't able to um, connect and do work education and train community members for some of the jobs that we have. We outsource a lot. And what happened was... Uh, MuralNet got vetted through Northern Arizona University um, because Martin Casado um, is an alumni from that university. And I had just happened to make a relationship with the vice president of the Office of Native American Initiatives, Chad Hamill. And they were telling me about MuralNet, about their mission statement to help bridge the digital divide in Indian country. And um, I was interested, uh, and that was actually the very first proposal I ever brought to tribal council. I think I was only like five months into my term. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it sounded pretty cool to me. No, <laughs> so, no that's great. Um, we brought the proposal, um, and um, it took a lot of educating. Um, it also, you have to keep in mind that the other council members who had been serving for 10 plus years had already heard proposals about being able to use things like telemedicine in the community. You can imagine when a helicopter is your public transportation and you need to get out to see a podiatrist or um, to go see the dentist, um, you need to save up about one grand in order to get out of the canyon Mm -hmm. to get a hotel for an entire week plus feed you and you're probably some of your family who've come out with you to wait for the next uh, helicopter to come down because not all... um, not all people are able to hike in out, out of the canyon. That's the truth, right? So a lot of people rely on the helicopter because of their health, you know, or their age. And in those instances, we kept seeing disparities uh, and we kept wondering why we were having first, second, third, fourth generation tele- telemedicine equipment in the tribe collecting dust mm-hmm. over and over again. These agencies would promise us that we could have um, telepsychiatry and telecounseling. You know, um, it, we're not the only ones who are going through uh, uh, a suicide cluster, right? And we needed someone down in the canyon every week. And we only had a professional down there like one week a month. Where was it? It was insane. So, and these are the things that we saw as the vision, as the value that could come out of partnering with someone like MuralNet. Their um, original pitch was to bridge the homework gap and and EBS, educational broadband um, service spectrum, um, was reserved for educational purposes. So that's how we proceeded originally, were for students and teachers. And um, that was the first success. And uh, as Marielle has mentioned, it was a pilot program. Well, it was. Uh, We were their first partners, and somehow this amazing success came out of it. And when Tribal Council saw the first few months of activation with the new network, the LTE network, um, it's within a 35-mile radius and of course, we had to go through political and federal issues in order to get the license, but they just saw hope. 
So, Bumpy, uh, you know, real quick, uh, it's also about the next generation. So what's really encouraging, and it's not so much that I help, you know, connect you guys up, but it's more about who's going to carry the ball, you know, going forward in the future generation. I only got maybe about 30 seconds. So. Okay, no, the, the ball is when everybody come on Thursday and start building it. And we're going to have all the generations from the babies to us, the elders, you know, out there and then picking up all this knowledge and and especially them because they're already in the digital world, Mm -hmm, right? They're mm -hmm. already cruising around of them. I I asked them this. Okay, how many of you got a digital ID? Nobody raised their hand. And this is our village, right? Your email address. First form of education. Well, you know, we're going to be telling more of your story, Bumpy, because I think this is going to be a, an example for a lot of other uh, communities in, in Hawaii to, to look at. Of course, uh, Bumpy, uh, Dennis Bumpy Kanahele, and uh, uh, he's part of the, he's the head of state, Nation of Hawaii. And Ophelia Watahomaji Corliss is with the Havasupai tribe. And I want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. All right, bro. thank you. And I thank you for listening to Bike Mars Cafe on site here at Hilo. Join us next week when we will be back in the studio to talk about a local tech startup called Hohonu. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. Much mahalo to our engineer, Jason Taglinetti. And, of course, you can catch us on HBR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HBR app, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You stay awesome, and we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors the Rice Partnership, Kaiser Permanente, and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training.